Good morning. The reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. Uh, We are in the middle of a series on Paul's letter to the church in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. Paul planted the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey. And so what he would do is he would come into a city and begin to preach. He would start a church, establish leadership for that church, and then once there was solid leadership in place, he would move on to another city. And then he would then correspond back to the churches that he planted Uh, to continue to answer their questions or correct them if they had begun to do things the wrong way. And this letter that we're looking at all throughout the spring is the first correspondence we have on record from Paul to the Corinthians. And we know that it was written in response to a correspondence that he had received from them. So we're right in the middle in chapter 9. Now, even if you're new to church or not familiar with the Bible, you probably know about 1 Corinthians 13. Right, it's the famous, what, what you might call the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, uh, love does not envy, it does not boast, okay? And the reason, so we're going to get there in a few weeks, okay? But the reason chapter 13 is in this letter is because the Corinthians, the love chapter, because the love chapter's here is because the Corinthians were so bad at it, right? They were talented, they were successful. In many ways, they were modern day upper middle class, middle class Americans, but they, they, the problem was is they weren't patient, they weren't kind, they were rude and judgmental and competitive. And, and what's fascinating is, is to see that we, in many ways, are a lot like them, that Christians today are not known for our love in our culture. More specifically, I think, uh, one of the ways that we have really failed in the area of love in leading our culture is that we, even we, who should know better, we don't know how to disagree well with one another. 
And it's a real problem in our culture, and the church should be leading the way because of all people, we should be able to listen to people who we disagree with, even those who, th- who we think are just plain wrong. Um, but, but in reality, we are just as bad, we're just as dysfunctional as the rest of the culture. And it's a problem with the Corinthians uh, in, you know, in this letter. The church here is in turmoil because there were, there were groups with different ideas you know, about how the church should be run or different views on a particular issue. And instead of civility and brotherhood and love for one another, they began to fight and draw party lines and judge and condemn those who disagree with their opinions. And so for all of chapters 8 through 10, Paul is taking up this issue and trying to help them learn how to disagree well. And here's what I want. See, we have to get something right. And what Paul is teaching us and what we have to load up into our brains, and this is not just true of church, this is true of family, it's true of all the different social, it's true of our nation, okay? Unity, unity in the church is not, and it does not mean the absence of conflict. Okay, being unified, being one with one another doesn't mean we never get sideways with one another. Unity depends upon a certain kind of conflict management, Unity is not dependent upon our always seeing eye to eye, but it is dependent upon when we don't, we resolve the conflict in a certain way. We're going to disagree. We're going to find out that we're on different sides of particular issues, right? But we, but we you know, can we love one another and be patient with one another and not walk away from one another in our differences? And the key is the gospel, that all of our failures to love, all of the breakdown of chapter 13 in their lives and in ours stems from gospel unbelief. If we're impatient or we're rude or we're unkind or we're irritable to one another or whatever it might be, it is because in some way the gospel's not taken root in us. It's still not real to our hearts yet. And so what Paul's going to do here is Paul's going to frame this whole chapter out of what he said in the chapter before. You see there in verse 1, he starts with the statement, am I not free? And that puts us back in chapter 8. And what Paul said back in chapter 8 is he's talking about the freedom of salvation by grace in Christ alone. The freedom of believing uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and then what it looks like to live your life out of that freedom. So what I want to do this morning is contrast these two statements Paul makes. I hope you caught it when, when, when we read it, because it really is, it's, it's strange, it's kind of perplexing at the beginning, because it sounds so contradictory, but in one sense Paul says, I'm free from the law, right? He says that, I, I show you where, down in verse, uh, verse 20, though I, I become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, I'm not under the law, Paul says, I'm free from the law, and yet then down in verse 22, or excuse me, 21, he, he then goes on to say, but I'm not outside the law of God. I'm free from the law. I'm not free from it. I'm no longer under it. I am. I, I'm not outside of it. And so there's this, Paul's going to talk about what it means for us to believe the gospel. That's point number one. He's going to talk, what does it mean for us to no longer be under the law? Okay, to believe it. But then secondly, the second point is he's going to talk to us about what it then means to become the gospel. Though we're not under it, what does it mean for us to not be outside of it either? And then I just want to make some applications, okay? So that's, you'll see that in your outline, those two points. I'm free from the law. I'm outside of the law. How do we bring those two things together and how do we apply it to our lives, okay? So let's just start with the statement. Verse 1, am I not free, Paul says. And then again in verse 20, to those under the law, I've become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Now, 
Paul says that he is not under the law anymore. He's free from the law. But what's that mean? What is that? Okay. It's what we learned in chapter 8. For Paul, his identity, I'm going to say it this way, and this is, this, you got to get this sentence because this, we're going to open this up. For Paul, his identity and his status were not connected or tied in any way to his performance. Paul's identity and his status, his spiritual status, were not tied to his performance. His sense of self, the way he evaluated himself or his life, isn't connected to the good or the bad that he does at all. In other words, Paul knows that God does not love him because of what he does or doesn't do. Right? Remember what I said last week. Just like in the creation story in Genesis where God looks down at what he's created and he passes a verdict on the creation. He says, oh, that is so good. Paul lives with the knowledge, and Lord, make it true in my heart, that God looks down upon his life and in looking down upon his life, God passes a verdict. Oh, man, that's good. But Paul knows that that verdict from God isn't because he's good in and of himself. It's because he's in Christ. So Paul says, I become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. And whenever you see that word law like this in the Bible, this is what it means. The idea of law is the idea of religion or moralism. It is the sense of I obey, I follow the rules, I keep the law And then, because I've done that, God loves me because of my obedience. Or I disobey, I break the rules, then God punishes me because of my disobedience. But in either case, God's disposition towards me is always in response to my performance. Paul says, I'm done with that. I'm no longer under the system of law or religion anymore. Paul's completely too immune to it. See, he doesn't feel good when he's good. He doesn't feel bad when he's bad. Can you imagine that? He doesn't, he doesn't feel, he doesn't get proud and arrogant in his spiritual successes. He doesn't fall into despair and self-loathing when he sins. He's completely free. There is no subjective connection in his heart between his identity and his status and his obedience or his disobedience. He doesn't connect God's love to his performance at all. So he's never overinflated and puffed up like we talked about last week. But the other side is he's never deflated either. He lives with a constant sense of God's being his loving father and friend, and nothing can take it away from him. And so the sense of the reality of God's love for him never leaves him. And that's what Paul means when he says, am I not free? Can you imagine? He says, there are no rules that I have to follow. There's absolutely nothing that I have to do in order to have God's love. I can eat foods. This is last week, right? I can eat food sacrificed to idols. I cannot eat. I can have a glass of wine with dinner. I can drink a Diet Coke, right? I can wear shorts and T-shirt to church. I can wear a suit. I can say yes to an invitation to a dinner party, or I can say no. My life and my choices are not being driven by fear or guilt anymore. Now it is joy and freedom. Oh, pray that God does that in my heart, right? Anybody else feel that way? Because you see, if you don't know that God loves and accepts you, not on the basis of your performance, but for the sake of Jesus, because you're in him, then you won't be free, you'll be a slave. 
You'll be a slave to the law. You'll be a slave to expectations. You'll be a slave to the need for the approval of others. You'll be a slave to a sense of guilt and condemnation and fear that will, will drive you along and overwhelm every part of your life. See, if God's love is dependent upon our obedience, then we're all in trouble because the Bible says that even our best tries aren't even close to meeting God's standard. That our slavery to sin has made it impossible for us to produce good works that please him. And even our best tries are stained with selfishness. That's the bad news. And yet, here's why we, yet we keep trying. We keep looking to the rules. It's just absolute foolishness. Well, that's the bad news. So what is the good news? And the good news is that like Paul, we can live out from underneath the law. We can be free like he was. And here's why. Because Jesus went under the law in our place. Listen to what he says in, the Gal- in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. In other words... Because Jesus was born under the law. Jesus was born under the obligation to keep the law. He lived his whole life under the obligation to keep the law. He perfectly kept the law so that we can live our lives out from underneath it. Jesus has freed us from the law, destroying the whole system of the law in his death and resurrection because he was perfectly obedient to the law's demands and thus merited God's love and blessing. And yet on the cross, he was condemned and killed as a lawbreaker. Now think about this. The lawkeeper was treated as a lawbreaker so that all of us who are lawbreakers could be treated as lawkeepers. And you know what that does? It destroys the law. Uh, this is the imagery in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you saw the movie or have read the book, and if not, you need to. Uh, But the stone table in the story is representative of the law. And it makes sense, doesn't it, right? Because Moses' Ten Commandments, Moses brings the law of God, the Ten Commandments, down from Sinai on two tablets of stone. So it's not hard to see the connection. And of course, in the story, it is on, it is upon, it's just, it's just so marvelous. It is upon the stone table that Aslan is killed by the White Witch. And C.S. Lewis is doing theology, see? Christ was crucified, as it were, upon the law, and in his death and resurrection, the law was destroyed. If you remember in the story, when Aslan comes back to life, what happens to the stone table? It breaks in two. Why? Because it's failed, see? The law says the innocent go free and the guilty are condemned, but in Jesus, an innocent was killed and the guilty got to go free, what then? What happens then? The stone table cracks in two. The law is destroyed, and the result is that you and I, who put our faith in Jesus, we can live out from underneath it. So Paul says, I'm free. I'm not under that that stuff anymore. I'm not under the law, verse 20, right? But here's the weird thing about this passage is he turns right back around in verse 21, and he says, but, but, I'm free I'm not under the law, but, but I'm not outside the law of God either, but I'm under the law of Christ. Paul says, I'm free, but I'm not free. I'm no longer under the law as a system of salvation, but now, see, I'm, I'm under the law of Christ. And that's really important to understand, because notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, my identity and status are not tied to my obedience or disobedience. Therefore, you know what? Mm-hmm. Obedience is irrelevant. Right? That may be logical, 
It is not biblical. Paul affirms the free, radical grace of God in Jesus Christ, but then he turns right around and also affirms that there's a standard of obedience that we are obligated to as his followers. And N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican um, pastor and commentator on these verses, he says this, and I thought it was really great. He said, Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, When Paul says, I'm free, it doesn't mean Paul says, I can do whatever I want, in other words. Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all the things that stop you being the person God really wants you to be. Isn't that a great statement? Christian freedom, let me say it again, is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all of the things that stop you from being the person God really wants you to be, which is freedom for the service of God and the gospel. In other words, the gospel, Paul's gospel of grace, doesn't make obedience optional. It's the very thing that that frees us to make obedience possible. Jesus has rescued us and freed us from our sins in order to make us obedient people. Does that make sense? So the law says, religion says, do this and be saved, right? That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. Do this and and be saved. But the ethics of the gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel says, in the gospel we hear God say, you're saved, I've rescued you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. You're in, I've saved you, you're rescued. Now do this. And the this, the this and that do this, is what Paul calls, verse 21, the law of Christ. God has rescued us and freed us for obedience to the law of Christ. That's what all of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is about. But what does he mean by that statement? It occurs in other places in the New Testament. And if you collect all the data, you can sum it up and say it like this. The law of Christ is a life of obedient love. It's a life of obedient love. Now I can, I can anticipate an objection. The objection might go like this. What good is it to trade in one law for another? How's that good news? Right? Didn't you just say the law's bad news? But now you're telling me there's a law over here. So how's it good news for me to trade in that old law with the new law? And my answer to that objection is just this. Remember, Paul says that he is out from under the law as a system of salvation. So the law of Christ is not a substitute system of salvation. It's not a new set of rules you have to follow in order for God to love and accept you. It's actually part of... Here's what's amazing. This law of Christ that we're now under is actually part of the good news of the gospel because the law of Christ is the law written on our hearts, the law that comes inside to change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is something God does in and through us by his power. So it's a completely different thing from the Old Testament law in a couple of ways. It's a different standard, and it's a different power source. It's a different standard. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, didn't I? Where in the Old Testament law, the standard was love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus comes along in John 13. He says, no, 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 that won't do anymore. Now now the standard is don't just love other people as you would, you know, have them do to you or as you would love yourself. Now I want you to love others as I have loved you. So the law of Christ is this expectation of a life of imitating Jesus' love for us and our love for other people. But not only a new standard... What's good news about this law is that it's a different, it comes from a different power source, that it is love that's empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. Literally, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he lived, died, was resurrected, went to heaven, is at the right hand of the Father, 
has sent his spirit into your hearts, and it is Jesus literally living and reigning us, forming himself in us by the Holy Spirit. So that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls or compels us. It's God's love for us that compels us towards a life of obedience. We've concluded that he died for us so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for our sake and was raised. So the law of Christ means a life patterned after and motivated and empowered by Jesus' life of sacrificial love for me. So love others the way Jesus loved you and find your strength to love others in the way that Jesus has shown love to you. Okay, that's what Paul means by the law of Christ. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to make a summary statement of this and then two applications, and then we're done, okay? The summary statement is just this. If you'll look at verse 19. what The summary statement that Paul gives of what the law of Christ means for him is this this statement in, in verse 19 where Paul says, Though I am free from all, I now make myself a slave to all. In other words, Paul says, I'm not bound by people's expectations. I don't have to do what they want me to. I don't need, right, I'm free. I don't need people to like me and approve of me. I'm free from all, and yet I'm willing to submit myself to others and allow their needs and desires to impact my life, right? What the argument Paul's been making throughout this chapter is, I put aside my rights and my privileges, and I allow myself to be inconvenienced, and I adapt my life depending on what others need from me. Now, I hope you can, I just walked around the house last night just shaking my head, at, at, this, at this verse, because this is completely off the charts of anything that we know as normal, right? Because the second part of that statement sounds very codependent, doesn't it? Right? I make myself a slave to all, right? Which is, which is, I never say no to you because I need you to like me or I need you to need me. Very codependent, it sounds. And of course, the solution is what, what's been come, you know, come to be known as this idea of boundaries, Right? This setting up boundaries in your life, making sure you take care of you, which in many ways, and I'm, I, you know, I, I believe part of health is, is being able to set up good boundaries, but it can sometimes become an excuse you know, to not love. So Paul, of course, is not codependent, right? He says, I'm completely free from all. In other words, my self-understanding is not tied at all to what other, other people think of me, yet he's not a pro-boundary person either. He says, I intentionally and purposefully make myself a slave to all. If people need me, I'm there. Right? I don't close myself off from the demands of other people and isolate and take care of me. Right? I'm free, but I make myself a slave. And so it's just, it's just fascinating to see this. That codependency is not love because you're not, whatever you're doing, you're doing it for you. You're not loving, you know, you're serving and loving other people to get your own needs met. But boundaries is not love either because you're walling off your life from other people and refusing to allow to allow you know, yourself to be bothered by their needs. And Paul, in an amazing way, walks the tightrope here between those two errors. He says, I'm not a slave to people. I'm free. I don't need them. I don't need them to like me, but I willingly make myself their slave. And only the gospel can make you a kind of person like that. Uh, a personal example of how I believe God's beginning to do this in my life uh, we have uh, we have a family, you know, extended family is always a fun thing to navigate. And, and, you know, in various parts of our family, you know, we have family that can be a little demanding at times. And so it's time to plan a birthday party. And we get a call this week that we have to do the birthday party in the middle of the week on a school night, two hours away, right? 
Uh, and this particular part of the family, the kids are homeschooled. I have two kids of my own in school now, so it's hard to think about being out of town late on a school night. We also play baseball, and this particular week is the week of the, you know, the end of the year tournament, right, that you've been playing all year for, right? So we need you to commit. What night can you be here? What night can you be here? We need to know when you're going to be here, right? And so, um, so one of the ways that I know God is at work in my life is at one time, not, you know, and, and still to some degree, um, Ashley and I would not have been able to say no because we are not free from all, <laughs> right? We're free from none. <laughs> That's the way it works with us. So we have some, some significant codependency tendencies, which we're working through, okay? But the gospel really is freeing me from the need to have other people be happy with me. So I really, so we get this call this week, and we're talking, it really is, I just really notice this really this just different sense of flavor of the conversation. I'm really free, and I think we're together becoming free to say, you know, no, or to say yes, right? But it's a different question now. The question's not, what do I have to do to keep this person happy with me, right? Now the question is, I'm, uh, they can be unhappy, you know. That's okay. In fact, it's, what they're asking is unreasonable, right? To have my kids, kids miss school or miss their baseball tournament or whatever, and their demand doesn't obligate me. But let me ask, what, but what is love? What does this person need from me, see? See, that's the, thing, the kind of thing Paul is talking about here. Though I'm free from all, I willingly make myself a slave to all. Not codependency, but not a boundaries person either. And trying and love is the love is the tension of trying to walk the tightrope between those two things. And so there's a couple of applications Paul gives us here that I think will be helpful for us as we think about how to try to make sense of these things. And so if you look down there at the bottom, I want to walk through, hopefully quickly with you, a couple of these applications. And so what what does it look like to begin to flesh this out? And the first thing I think you see in Paul here that really comes out of this, I'm free from all, but I make myself a slave, is Paul really lives his life with a diligent and strategic love towards other people. So you see there in verses 19 through 23, to the Jews, I become as a Jew, to those under the laws, I law has become as one under the law, to the weak, I become weak, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Here's the way I would put it, I like, this is catchy to me, and I'm going to use it at some point later, but Paul is a gospel chameleon, right? He's always changing the shape and color of his life. He's changing the way he does things. And that's a sign of gospel freedom, by the way, okay? Paul's life was shaped around what, uh, not his own preferences and desires, but what other people needed from him. Not what he wanted, right? He didn't make demands upon people. He, he didn't make them come to him. He entered into their demands and he went to them. He changed the way he was living in order to make room for other people and conform his life to their needs in order to win an audience with them for his gospel message. And that word become, when he says, I became, I became, I became, it literally means to change. Paul was willing to change. He was willing to lay down his preferences and his personal desires and even some of his personal convictions for the sake of relationships with people. He was willing to adapt depending on who he was with and what they needed. So let me ask, can you change for the sake of loving and serving others? Can you eat food you don't really like for the sake of somebody else? That's the issue in chapter 8, right? Can you change your life and stop doing things you really enjoy because it's what the people in your life need from you? Even though you're completely free to do those things. Are you able to identify and affirm weaknesses in the people in your life 
and not be aggravated by them, but make room for them in their weakness and be patient. Paul says he does all of this for the sake of the gospel, saying. In other words, it's because this is what Jesus has done for him. This is what Jesus has done for me. He's loved me. Now that motivates me not to live for myself, but to live, to love, and serve others. Think about this. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told uh, that Jesus, who was God, became nothing in order to be obedient, even to death upon a cross. Now think about this from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is God, and yet he became man. He is the one who sung stars into existence and gave them their names, the giver of the breath of life, the fountain of all existence in the universe, without whom all things would be nothing. He, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, he changed and became nothing. He is the divine heir of the kingdom of heaven, the king of the universe, and he changed and he became like a servant and washed feet and served breakfast to his friends. He is the one With all authority in heaven and earth, there is none greater or more worthy of bowing before. And yet he became a submissive son to his heavenly father and bowed before his father's will. He is the second person of the Trinity, eternal, without beginning or end, having life in and of himself. And yet he changed and was obedient all the way to death on the cross. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Why would God do that? The best answer I've ever come across is a sermon by B.B. Warfield called Imitating the Incarnation. And in that sermon, here's how he put it. He said, into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, Jesus permitted this thought to enter, I will die for men. And so mighty was his love. I want to preach like this one day, right? So mighty was his love. So colossal the divine purpose to save that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsullied blessingness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness. He made no account for himself. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all upon the altar of love. That's amazing. Why did Jesus change and become nothing and go to the cross? Because his love for you was so great and his desire to win you, to have you for himself was so overwhelming he could think of nothing else. He was completely absorbed in your needs and not thinking about himself. So Paul says there in Philippians 2, have the mind of Christ. Do what he did. Church, humble yourself and serve others the way he humbled himself and served you. Consider the love he's shown to you. He took no thought for himself, for his needs, for his desires. Thinking only of you. Making himself a slave to your needs. Dying in your place upon the cross. Have you ever had somebody love you like that? That completely. That selflessly, I doubt it. Has anyone so high ever become so low? And he did it for us. Has anyone ever, has anyone so rich ever become so poor? And he did it to make you and I rich. See, soak your heart in those truths. It will produce in you the mind of Christ. So what you see here first is Paul has this diligent strategic love 
But the second thing I want you to see is the application number two is with that comes a diligent and strategic self-restraint or discipline of his own life and desires. So, of course, to forget yourself and allow yourself to live a life absorbed in the needs of the people around you, to become a slave to all and allow your life to be dictated to by what others need and want from you, that makes for a hard life, right? It's a busy life, a sacrificial life, an unselfish life, so it requires an unbelievable amount of courage and flexibility and strength of character, and that's the second application. See, to follow the law of Christ requires the diligent, consistent, strategic practice of personal discipline and spiritual formation and self-restraint. So in order to work and live this way, you have to constantly be working on your own heart, cultivating self-control, self-restraint, which is what Paul talks about in verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so that you may obtain it. For every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So I do not run aimlessly, but I beat my body, keep it under control. That's what Paul says. So like an athlete in training for the season or like a runner training for a race, Paul says, I'm constantly reining in my desires, denying myself, refusing to allow myself to be indulgent, right? My brother-in-law is a professional baseball player, and every year around the middle of December, sometime around there, he goes into training mode for the upcoming season, and literally it's like, it's like okay, things are different. Things have changed. Every part of his life, his schedule, what he eats, when he goes to bed, the amount of free time he has, right, the availability he, of, of, you know, that he has for his wife, everything, all of his life comes in line with this one goal, be ready for the season, right? And that's what Paul means when he says self-control in all things, self-rule, self-restraint, the restraining of every part of your life towards a certain goal. And it makes sense, right, because the work Paul describes up there in verses 19 through 23 is hard, it requires you to have to die to what you want for the sake of others. You have to say no to yourself. And we hardly ever say no to ourselves. Or maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. Right? As a culture, we, we don't even know how to do that. It's hard. Your, your life's not going to go the way you want it to. You're not going to get what you want. And you've got to get yourself ready for that. And again, Paul is calling us to the imitation of Jesus in the way he lived his life and loved others. And you see it all over the place. In his ministry, he's constantly denying himself. Jesus lives his life not doing his own will, but laying aside his schedule and letting the needs of the people around him interrupt his life. He had this incredible amount of self-restraint, even saying, I've not come to do my will. I'm not here for me. Right? So, now go and be self-controlled like Jesus. Let's pray. Right? No, I was just kidding. A couple of people bowed their heads and were like, okay, that was quick. Whoa, what just happened? Right? We can't end there. I wish we could, and I know some of you probably wish we could too. But, see, the problem is, is that the self-restraint of Jesus is not just the standard for our self-restraint, it's also the power for it. So let me finish with that, and then I promise I'm done. See, we typically talk about self-restraint meaning a force of the will over the emotions or the feelings. So an example would be something like, I want to eat this chocolate cake, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. My wife would be like, throw that out of the house now, right? Right now while I'm sane, right? And then I'll go to throw it and she'll grab the plate and we'll have this tug, you know. Because, you know, you clamp down on your feelings and you fight through it, right? That's what, that's what we typically mean by self-control. But that's not how this passage talks about self-control that works, key to not eating the chocolate cake is to figure out 
uh, is not to figure out how to not want the chocolate cake, right? That doesn't work. Anybody with me? Right? That never happens. (laughs) The key is to want something more than you want the chocolate cake. And that's how it goes with athletes. Does the athlete want the chocolate cake? Of course they do, but they want something more. And it's what Paul calls the prize. They want the prize more than the cake. And that's why they're able to say no. So here's all I've got to say. Your life and my life are ordered by the thing we most want, the thing we most cherish and love and desire, and that's the prize. Now, what was Paul's prize? What's he willing to do all of this for? And the answer in verse 23 is the gospel. He says, I do it for the sake of the gospel. In other words, the gospel has become not only the example or the standard that Paul is aiming at, it is also the thing that is at the center of his life that's, excuse me, controlling and dominating and ordering all of the different parts of his life toward the goal of obediently loving and serving others. Jesus was Paul's prize. And that's what produced this love, this life of love. So how does Jesus become your prize? How does the gospel become the controlling and ordering passion of your life so that though you're free, you can make yourself a slave, an imitation of Paul, an imitation of Jesus? Well, see, the answer is in Hebrews 12. The Hebrews writer tells us that Jesus was able to say no to himself and endure the cross because there was a joy that was set before him. That's what Hebrews 12.2 says, that there was a prize that was better to Jesus than to avoid the sufferings of the cross. But what was it? What was the joy that was there waiting for him on the other side of the cross? What did he not have that he had to endure the, tr- the cross in order to gain? And there can only be one answer, and that is that the joy that ordered Jesus's, the whole of Jesus' life, the prize that enabled him to say no to himself and say yes to the suffering of the cross. The prize was you and me. We are his prize. See, that's what Paul learned in the gospel. He came to see that he was Jesus' prize. And when that truth came into his heart, then the gospel became his joy and his prize. See, the love of Jesus for him became the standard by which he lived. The love of Jesus for him was so real. It became so real to him that it became the controlling reality of his heart so that all of the different parts of his life came in line with the goal. I'm free. I'm free. God doesn't love me because of what I do or don't do. God doesn't love me if I say yes to this person. He doesn't love me if I say... I'm free to do whatever it is I feel I need. Not free to do whatever I want to do, but free to do whatever the demands of love are for me. I'm free. But now I can willingly make myself a slave. That's the law of Christ. And only when the gospel becomes real to your heart will you find the inspiration and the power and the motivation to live as obedient lovers and followers of Jesus. So let's pray, can we? Because we need to, that God would come and work this home in our hearts. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For John says in John 3 that you so loved the world, you so loved us that you gave your most precious gift that we might be rescued from our sin. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that the reality of your salvation is not just that you have forgiven us, that you've given us a free pass, a go-to-heaven free card, right? Get out of hell free. It's not that. It's that you have freed us. You've rescued us from the powers of sin that have enslaved us, and you have freed us Not so that our obedience to you is optional, but now it's finally possible. And so would you come and so enamor our hearts with the love that you have for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would overwhelm us with your love, that it would be 
as a rolling ocean, as the song we sing sometimes says, over and under and around and through us, so overwhelming to us that it would melt our hearts and we would have no choice but to say yes to you as you call us to a life of obedient love, being free from all, yet becoming willingly the servant and the slave of all, that we might bear fruit that would glorify you. Form us as a people for your holy name, a people that live for your glory, a people that do not live for themselves, but who live to love and serve others, so that the love of Jesus for us will become real to our city and real to our kids and even real in our own hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The love of Jesus for us in the gospel is the cure for all that ails us as a society. It's for the, for the cure for the disease, and the dysfunction that is so true of so many of our lives. Right? A love so powerful that it could come into a life uh, and say to a person, though you're free, though you're free, become a slave. And that there could be a joyful willingness to move out to love and serve others. See, that's, that's the power of the gospel at work. And it's only possible if you know uh, at the very beginning, from the outset, that, that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Father smiles upon you, resting neath your smile, Lord Jesus. Right? Now I'm free to go. And as you did for me, to make myself a slave to others. So, the promise of this benediction is that indeed the Father does smile upon you. And as I raise my hands over you, you can hold your hands out like this to receive the promise of the Father, and to rest uh, underneath his smile. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.